Pray with me. Do speak, O Lord. Your people are assembled, and we have ears to hear your voice. Please speak clearly and bless us. Amen. We continue today from Philippians chapter 2. We have a memory verse for today. Memory verse is verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Similar to what Chad read from the gospel, isn't it? If you want to, do we have it? Yeah, we have a. Take a second, jot that down on your notes page, because we've had a memory verse every sermon during this, uh, the book of Philippians, the study. This one is the first one that really kind of puts the screws to you. It really demands something of you, doesn't it? I'm going to back up and now read the first four verses, so you'll have more chance to write that down as I read the four, first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, can you imagine a more perfect world than that? What is keeping you from just doing it, from just living that way? Because we could all agree if we all just lived that way, the world would be awesome. What on earth is keeping us from living that way? The... um, There's an ancient allegory. This is not from the Bible, so fair... Fair, fair, fair. It's not from the Bible, but it's an ancient allegory called the Allegory of the Spoons. Maybe you've heard of it. It goes something like this. A man is given a glimpse into hell, and he sees a long dining room table, people sitting all around it. The food on it is perfect and sumptuous. It smells fantastic, but all of the people around the table are scrawny skeletons. They're angry. They're sick-looking And the problem is each of them has been given a long spoon and is angry because it's too long. They can't get the food into their mouths. And the the person getting the vision says, take it away, take it away. And so he's given a new vision, told he's going to be shown heaven. And at first he's terrified because heaven looks just like hell, the same long table, the same delicious food. But then at second glance, the people around the table are healthy. They're glowing. They're smiling. They're happy. They're not hungry. And here the difference is, though they have the same long spoons, the people in heaven are using their spoons 
to feed one another across the table from each other. A simple story, but it fits well with the beginning of today's text. In humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. But how do we do it? The problem with us is as soon as somebody starts to put me ahead of himself, what am I tempted to do? I'm tempted to let him. I'm tempted to let him put me above himself. I'm tempted to kick back and realize, this is kind of nice being served here. And then I'm tempted to take advantage of it. And before long, I might even be exploiting the good-hearted nature of this other person who's considering my needs above his own. This is the result of sin in our lives. When people do put us ahead of them, we're tempted to use them. Now, what in the world is the solution to that problem? And if it can't be done, if you say there is no solution to that problem, then why would the Bible give us the command in many, many places to do it, to live like this? Is God going to give us a command that he knows we can't keep? That sounds kind of cruel. The first step that I'd like you to remember, you probably already know this, but the first uh, step toward living into this goal is to remember what you all are supposed to be, what this thing we call church, what are we called to be? We are called to be the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the picture that we're given of heaven. I'll say more about that in just a minute. But people in the new Jerusalem see things differently. They think differently. They act differently. They value things differently than those outside. Out there, out there is like Babylon. If you know your Bibles, Babylon was the perpetual outsiders. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't respect his ways. Okay, so that's out there is Babylon. In here is supposed to be different, the new Jerusalem. So in the book of Revelation, the image that John is given, the image that John is given from the end times, from the image of heaven, is he sees this perfect city come down from the skies, settling on the earth. This is, this is called the new Jerusalem. And God is there. It's the unification of heaven and earth. Now, 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 we can't, when I say that we're supposed to be the new Jerusalem, we can't become the new Jerusalem as if, as though by struggling, or if we're just good enough, we can do it, we can achieve. No, it's Jesus alone. God is going to bring the new Jerusalem once and for all to earth. But we can start to look like it. And that's what we're called to do. We're supposed to start to look like it. That's what the commands in your Bible 
are there for. Not because you can achieve a heavenly standard, but because you're supposed to look that way now. You're supposed to look like that heavenly standard now to the outside world. You're supposed to look like this community here is the closest thing to heaven that Babylon, if I can use that terminology, will ever see. And that raises the bar on how we treat church, doesn't it? It raises the bar, it should raise the bar for how we think about this thing that we do when we gather, this life that we have with one another. It also, uh, it also gives more, um, uh, puts more meat on the bones to the, the, the notion that I, I can be a, a Christian without the church. A Christian, a single Christian out there cannot image the new Jerusalem like the church can. He can't repent and forgive himself. He can't demonstrate what, what it looks like to put others above himself if he's just all by himself. It's, again, I, I said last week, it's like, it's like a grain of sand is created to be in a beach. And you can say, and the sand might say to himself, well, I don't have to be in a beach to be sand. Well, that's true. Okay, so I don't have to be in church to be a Christian. Okay, but that's what you're doing, is you're saying, I don't have to be in a beach to be a grain of sand. Wonderful. You were made to be a beach, right? Paul starts by saying, you guys got to be one. That, 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 with that image of the beach in your mind, I want you to think about that as, as, as the church. Because Paul says, I want you to be one. What did he say? I You're already united with Christ, sharing in his spirit. Then make my joy complete, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Then he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. There's two things that will not be in uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Two things that will not, will not exist in the new Jerusalem are selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is like, is like I got to get more stuff. I got to accumulate more. I got to achieve more successes, more trophies on the wall. Blaise Pascal pointed out that all people are unhappy, struggling through life, trying to find happiness with all their might. Some, well, they only look for it in one of two places. Some people choose ambition. That's what I've been talking about, achieving new, new, new triumphs, new heights, new successes, material possessions. They treat anything and everything like a God except God himself and act and expect that these things that I'm accomplishing or achieving or gaining or purchasing are going to make me happy. That's selfish ambition in a nutshell. Others look for happiness in vain conceit. The person is who is conceited 
looks for happiness by treating himself as a god. Or, or, or he wants other people. It's really he's treating how other people view himself. See, he wants to be treated like a god. I want you to respect me so much. I want you to be so impressed by me. Pascal had this really clever way of putting it. He says, and this, for a social media age, this is going to hit you right between the eyes. He says, we do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves. We desire to live an imaginary life in the mind of others. You got you, tracking with him? We're not happy with life that God's, but we, what we want is the life that I'm living in your head. That's what I'm concerned about, the life that I'm living in your mind, the me that's in your mind. And for this purpose, we endeavor to shine. We labor unceasingly to adorn and preserve this imaginary existence and neglect the real. Because who is the me that's in your mind? That's not even the real me, is it? We would willingly be cowards in order to acquire the reputation of being brave. We would willingly be cowards in order to acquire the reputation of being brave. Have you learned to set aside selfish ambition or vain conceit? Or have you learned to appreciate those things as good things, but understanding that that's not where happiness is to be found? You can find good things in your possessions, in your accomplishments. You can be proud of the bowling trophy you have on the mantle. Anybody ever bowl a 300 game? 250. 250 or higher? Yeah, really? You do too? You got trophies? You got a trophy? You got a trophy? Still, it didn't burn in the fire? 250, that's, that's nothing to sneeze at. We can be proud of that stuff, but you recognize that stuff's not going to make me happy. That's not what it's all about. Or can you, be, can, you, can you be thankful for the fact that other people respect you? Sure, of course, but without being obsessed with what other people think about you without being so worried about what other people think about you that you're almost paralyzed to do anything or say anything. The, the, the you that exists in the minds of others, it's a fake, it's an imagination, it's, it's a mist, it's, it's not even a thing. <laughs> you, I mean, are you tracking? This is like big time stuff for this day and age. The you that exists in the mind of somebody else it doesn't really exist. It's not really you. Relax. And you be you. You be the real you, okay? And if, in case you don't believe me yet, if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the you living in the mind of that other person was just the perfect ideal, king or queen-like image, it still wouldn't be real, and it still wouldn't be you. Even if you're as famous as Rihanna, she's singing at the Super Bowl today. 
right? But the Rihanna that exists in all of our minds, if you even know who she is, it's not really her. It's fake. How many people really know who she is? Like this many people. No, like really, no, no, know her. I mean, not know, no, not know of her, but how many people know her? Just, just a few people. Same amount of people that know you, probably. There's some YouTuber, Skyla wanted to make sure just yesterday that I invited this YouTuber to her birthday. Her birthday is in October. I can talk about her because she's not in the room right now. Her birthday is in October. And I says, Skyla, you don't even know him. Yes, I do. I've seen all of his videos. I says, okay, so you only know what he's put on video about himself. You have, he could be a bad guy. He could be a meanie. And it was like, She'd never thought about that before. I don't really know him? Well, wow. No, the hymn that, the, the that exists in the mind of Skyla, it's, what even is that? <laughs> it's nothing. Yet the reason I'm taking so long hammering this point is because so many of us Invest so much energy in the me that lives in the mind of you. And for some of us, that's the most important thing in our lives. And that is a tragedy. It's also universal. So I don't say that to you so you can beat yourself up. We all do it to some extent. One more Pascal quote for you. He points out that vanity is so anchored in the heart of man that a soldier, a soldier's servant, a cook, a porter, these are like low people on the totem pole, even a porter brags and wishes to have his admirers. Even philosophers wish for them. Those who write against it want to have the glory of having written well. And those who read it desire the glory of having read it. <laughs> it's not okay. And I, just, I just don't want to read good books. I want you to know that I've read the good books. I who write this, he reflects on himself for a moment. I who write this perhaps have this desire and perhaps those who will read it. And now I've just done it, haven't I? I've shared it with you. Saying, look at me. I've read Blaise Pascal, Pascal's, his pensée. But Pascal is just teaching his readers something that he learned from Paul. That happiness is neither without us nor within us. Without means outside in his day and age. Happiness is, is neither without us or within us. It is in God, both without us and within us. Happiness is neither without us nor within us. Happiness is in God, both without us and within us. Now the community of people that is even just beginning to understand this is really going to be on to something. That community is really going to start looking different. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying you're supposed to look like the new Jerusalem. If you find that that's you, keep going. You're on the right track. Lean into it. 
Because the, re- the, the, the new Jerusalem, the real thing now, not a figment of your imagination, the actual real Jerusalem, it's a concrete future reality. It is coming. It is coming. Our evidence that these features, selfish ambition and vain conceit, we have evidence that these features will not always define the world. Our evidence is what comes next in the text. A hymn, probably, that Paul quotes for these Philippian believers. In verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who had everything, he was in the new Jerusalem already, and he left it voluntarily. He gave it all up, choosing instead to suffer poverty and misery if it meant having more people like you with whom to share his love. Jesus, who was everything, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He, though, did not demand attention. He did not demand respect, but he took up the posture of a servant. He washed feet. He lived a life of poverty. He was born to just a normal family in an obscure backwoods town. This is the king who will lead us in the new Jerusalem. This is the king who calls us to follow him even today. Now, ironically, poetically even, the result of loving other people in this way, the golden rule that Chad read, or what Paul talks about here, putting others above ourselves, the way that Jesus himself, the result of loving people in this way, ironically or even poetically, is glory. Glorification is the result. I say it's ironic because we fight for glory and achievement and fame, and those struggles end up being all for naught in the end. But those who take heed to the word of God and who try their best to love this way find at the end they haven't lost anything, but they themselves gain everything. Verse 9 says, therefore, therefore what? Because Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the upside-down way of God's economy, of how God loves. Victory looks like an old rugged cross. That was Jesus' enthronement as king, naked and humiliated, beaten and scorned and abandoned. This is the way of God's people. And this is a curious way. So when we start to live this way, others will notice. What does it take to live this way? What does it take to love people the way that Jesus did? What does it take to love people the way that Paul here is telling us to love people? It's not an easy instruction to hear. But I think the first answer to that question is to look upward for power and not inward. Remember what Pascal says? We're looking for happiness without and within. Happiness is neither place. Happiness is in God, both without and within. Well, same thing for power. If you want power, the ability to do something that, that's going to require a supernatural ability, it's not, it's, you're not going to get it from outside. Just the, you're not going to get it from outside, just the right self-help book, though that can be useful. Not the right counselor, though those can be useful. Not the right... And it's not, you're not going to get it from inside, just, you know, enough gumption, pull myself up on my bootstraps, and I'm, I try hard enough. I'm not going to get it from inside. I'm going to get it from the Holy Spirit. That's where I'm going to get the power to do what I want to do, to do what I need to do. It's going to be from the Holy Spirit, who is both outside and inside. So I don't want you to beat yourself up if you've tried really hard to be loving and and you're not there yet. But what I do want you to do is I want to ask you this. I want to ask you, do you want to be able to obey the instructions that Paul gives his church in Philippi? Do you want to be able to love people like that? Seriously, do you even want it? That's where it starts. Do you want to be able to obey the great commandment or the, great, the golden rule? Do you want to be able to see others as Jesus does and to love others as Jesus does? Even if you're not there yet, you still can't stand them maybe. They're still really annoying. They're wrong six ways to Sunday. They're wrong about everything. But do you want to be able to love them like Jesus tells you to love them? That's step one. That's step one. Agree that living this way would be a good thing. And that's the easiest. Well, it's both the easiest and the hardest of the four steps I'm going to give you. Agree that living this way, loving others, treating others like this would be a good thing if I could do it. Step two, also comes from the text now, is I want you to see that this is how Jesus loves. I want you to think about how Jesus treated you, how Jesus treats other people, how Jesus sees you, how Jesus sees other people. And you want to try to think about that more than you think about how you see other people and how you treat other people. 
How does Jesus see my wife? I'm really exasperated by her. She just keeps doing this dishwasher wrong, and I just can't, or maybe something serious, you know. I just can't, oh, I'm so, oh, I roll, I roll. How does Jesus see her? Or your husband? How does Jesus see him? See? Let that thought invade your brain because you won't want to let that thought in when you just want to be mad at somebody. You got to let that thought in like an invading force. How's Jesus see my teenager who doesn't want anything to do with me? My boss who's criticizing me for something I didn't do. How's Jesus see him? See how Jesus loved them? Step three, I've already told you step three, is desire. Desire to be able to see people how Jesus does, to love people how Jesus does. So one, you're agreeing that it's a good thing, it would be a good thing to do what the Bible says. Novel idea, right? It would be a good thing. Two, you're going to look to Jesus, though, as your model and your continual reminder. Three, you're going to desire now. You're going to start desiring to be more like Jesus. And then step four is you're going to lean into the Spirit. Now, what is, is that just Christianese mumbo-jumbo? What does it mean, pastor, to lean into the Spirit? I mean, I'm going to fall over if I do that. Lean into the Spirit. It just means you're going to depend on Him. You really need to depend on the Spirit to give you the ability. But you need to ask for it. Ask for the ability to love people in an uncommon way. And then you'll see something will happen. Something will happen where you are given the supernatural ability to treat somebody better or differently than you would not have done before. And at that moment, a light bulb's gonna come on and the Spirit's gonna be like tapping you on the shoulder saying, see, that was me. See, that was me. It actually works. Keep going. Keep going. And as you do this, and as we do this together, we start looking just a little bit like the New Jerusalem. And Babylon out there gets jealous. They get angry too sometimes. But a lot of them get jealous. And some of them get curious. They want to come check it out. They want to know what makes you so different. And that's how God calls people to himself. That's how God populates the kingdom of heaven. You know that? Having babies and acting like the new Jerusalem and calling people to come and see what this is all. That's how God grows his church. Only two ways. Well, I guess there's visions and dreams in there somewhere. But for the most part, it's having babies and acting like the new, a, new, a new people and attracting people to his kingdom that way. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much that it is your desire. Well, first of all, you give us commands that seem impossible to, to obey. And then you give us so much grace, though, that even when we don't obey them or don't even want to obey them sometimes, you're still there for us. And we thank you for that, for offering your grace and mercy, your forgiveness. And this church here is a special place. And I know that you have made this 
church family an attractive place to so many. You've made this place a place where people want to be. And we pray, Father. We thank you for that, first of all. Thank you for what you're doing here and among us. And we ask you to fan that little flame into a roaring fire. We ask you to continue to grow us spiritually and individually and numerically as well as a church. Continue to increase our influence in our community. Not so that we could live in other people's imaginations as well-respected or la-di-da type people, but so that we can make your name known, make you famous, and make you glorified until you finally bring that new Jerusalem here to Auburn. Help us to look a little bit more like it day by day. In the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, for the glory of God the Father, we pray. Amen.